The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. If you've never been lost, how can you be found? Amazing grace, saving a wretch like me. But if you've never acknowledged that you are a wretch, 
How can amazing grace have any impact on your heart or your life? That wonderful song from heaven, Amazing Grace, was written by a man who acknowledged that he needed the grace of God to be saved, not to cover his sin, but to change him to transform him into a new creature. It was written by a man who had suffered, a man who had been a slave, and then a slave to slaves, a man who had been whipped and beaten, a man depressed and suicidal. a man who became the lowest of the low as a slave trader, profiting from the wickedness of imprisoning, imprisoning other men and women and children. The man who wrote this hymn, which has touched millions, was an utterly unlikely candidate who have been embraced by Jesus Christ. John Newton was born in 1725 in England. And I want to talk about him again today because this was a man who was at one point half converted. And Jesus had to come with his grace equal to the first saving of his soul to bring him into the fullness of the gospel. Many of you listening today are only but half converted, and it will take the marvelous, unmatched glory of Jesus to save your soul. John Newton was born to a devout Christian mother who taught him to read by the age of four. His mother would read aloud the word of God to him, and then she would pray with him. She was a a deeply pious woman, constantly cried out to God, asking that her son, John Newton, would become a minister of the gospel. And then, sadly, when Newton was just seven years old, he died. His father remarried a wicked, worldly woman. And for the next 16 years, he sank into the deepest pit of hell. John Newton's father was a merchant sailor. And he went, John Newton went to sea by the age of 11. And between the ages of 11 and 19, he completed voyages at sea throughout the British Isles, Scandinavia, and the Mediterranean. Now, life on the seas in the 1700s was a very dangerous proposition, especially for a young boy. At the age that you and I were in junior high and high school, 
Newton was surrounded by danger, by pirates, by gunfights, and by every wicked thing you could possibly imagine. They would go into ports, ports that would cater to every vile inclination of the human heart, drunkenness, prostitutes, violence, murder. This was the world that John Newton grew up in. And by his late teens, he had been utterly taken over by the demonic. He earned the reputation of being a brawler, a drinker, a a blasphemer, a mocker of the Gospels. His impiety and swearing even shocked his fellow seamen. He sinned against Jesus with a high hand. He even tried to talk other seamen out of any inclination toward the Lord God of heaven. He scorned Jesus. He fell off the ship. Once he was so drunk he almost drowned. John Newton did not turn. Instead, he grew even more in his debauchery. He was an angry, violent, hostile man. The age of 19, John Newton was captured by a press gang, and he was forced into the British Navy against his will, being Pressed into service by Great Britain meant that you were arrested by a press gang, often in a bar where the men were drunk. These press gangs were simply armed thugs who would kidnap military men of age for the crown. They they would throw them into shackles and give them the choice to serve in His Majesty's Navy or go to prison, which was likely a death sentence. Many American colonists, by the way, were also pressed into service in the Royal Navy, not only before the American Revolution, but also even after the Revolution. Some 9,000 citizens of the United States were captured by the British Navy after we won our independence, and they were forced to serve on English warships as semi-slave prisoner sailors in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Today, most of us assume our freedom. We assume that it will always remain. We assume that we'll always have the right to assemble and the right of free speech, the right of the Second Amendment. That is a dangerous lie. Our forefathers knew of the wickedness of man's heart that would come and begin to strip away those God-ordained rights. Not privileges granted by the government, but God-ordained rights. They tried to create a constitution and a declaration of independence. They tried to set up a bill of rights I'm going to deal more with this next week. 
but do not take your freedom lightly. It is a gift from Almighty God, and if it is not pursued in righteousness, it will be lost. Newton, at the age of 19, forced to serve on the British man of war, the HMS Harwich. Literally, he was on a floating prison. Now, Newton was a completely rebellious man. He was not going to conform to any man's wishes. He was going to be free. Pardon me. He was going to be free. He was going to do what he wanted to do. And so, of course, he did not want to be aboard this floating prison. He rejected his imprisonment, and he deserted. He escaped his ship. It was a decision he would shortly regret. He was caught by the Royal Marines. He was returned to his ship. He was stripped to the waist, and he was flogged and whipped by an officer. Not just a few lashes and a reprimand. No, he was dealt 96 lashes in all, the first 12 to be struck with the cat of nine tails that turned his back into a bloody mess. He was humiliated by this savage punishment. Newton wrote years later that in the bitterness of this experience, he carefully planned how he could murder the officer who administered the flogging, and then his plan was to immediately commit suicide so that he would not be forced to suffer beheading or the hangman's noose, or even worse, a lifetime of captivity and punishment. He never carried out his plan. God had a plan for Newton's life. He wrote later, The secret hand of God restrained me. But Newton would carry these deep physical and emotional scars for the next 60 years of his life. The former atheist who would curse and blaspheme God, who was a free thinker, was now learning what suffering was. The suffering, however, was just getting started. Now let me be very plain. God is not the one who brings the bitter anguish to our lives. The devil is. But God, in his sovereignty, allows it to arrest a man or a woman in their foolish course of self-destruction. I do not know a man or a woman who has honestly come to Jesus without suffering in their life. The way of the cross is a way of suffering 
and the devil will throw every possible accusation, charge. He will do all he can to destroy you. That is truth in advertising. But there is a glorious presence of Jesus that comes into a man or a woman's heart that brings righteousness and great joy and peace for those who are willing to walk the nail-scarred way. Shortly after his flogging, he was exchanged to work aboard a slave ship. He actually volunteered for this, thinking it would be better than on the forced navy ship. After his failed escape, his status had been changed from midshipman to felon, and he was then cast into irons to live the harshest conditions possible with those who were serving out prison sentences to avoid death. His situation went from bad to worse. He would later write that he was so shamed from the flogging that he wanted off the Harish no matter what happened. After being transferred to a slave ship to gain some reprieve from the new low, his press service became, became the servant of a slave trader. But before long, still a man of rebellion, the slave trader became tired of his wickedness and actually made him a slave. He's imprisoned, he's at sea, he's chained and shackled with the slaves on board, and he was sold in Sierra Leone, Africa. And there he was a slave, forced to work on a lemon tree plantation. But on that plantation, it became even worse. Do you understand? God is going to allow the devil to take us to utter destruction until our heart turns from its rebellious ways. So we cry out to God. Until we ask to be made righteous until we ask for the gates of righteousness to be opened to our hearts. Some of you are just casually drifting along. There's no cry for righteousness in your heart or your soul, and you think you're saved, and you play with every kind of wickedness. You, you suck in all the entertainment of the world. You love the redskins. You love the entertainment of the world. There's no heart cry for righteousness. It would be the greatest mercy of God to allow the devil to attack you and bring you to the end of yourself. And so now he is a slave. 
he was given to the plantation owner's wife, who thought herself to be an African princess. She quickly reduced Newton down to nothing. She put him below the slaves. She made him a slave of slaves. She did her best to humiliate, to degrade, and to torture him. Newton was subject to starvation and exposure and on the verge of going mad, on the verge of dying. Now, not all of his fellow slaves treated him in this manner. Some of them were very concerned for him. Some of the slaves took pity on this man who deserved no pity. The only reason he survived was that other slaves would sneak food into him. This woman, this African princess, tried to starve him to death and work him to death. These slaves became so concerned for John Newton's life that they were willing to risk their own lives to smuggle letters out of the lemon tree plantation, letters to Newton's father. And one of these letters actually reached England. After the brutal Navy service and the slavery, 1748, this 23-year-old skeleton of a man, at the point of dying, was rescued by a sea captain who'd been asked by Newton's father to search for him. And he was freed. Shortly thereafter, in that same year of 1748, somewhere off the coast of Ireland, en route to Newfoundland, Newton found in the ship's library a book by Thomas Akempis. It was the classic on the imitation of Christ. And he began to wonder, are all of these things about Jesus true? Now, as he's reading this book and he's wondering about this God, his heart broken and humbled, his body savaged by the cruel treatment he had received, there is an extremely violent North Atlantic storm. The seas were so rough that waves swept over the entire ship a crew member who was standing where Newton had been standing just moments before was swept overboard, and Newton knew that his life had been spared. It began to dig into his heart. They spent hours on the pumps trying to save the ship, trying to prevent it from being capsized. Newton said, Lord, have mercy 
have mercy upon us. He was put at the helm, and for the next eleven hours, battled the seas to keep the ship afloat and aright. During his time at the wheel, he pondered this divine challenge. And finally, Newton cried out in surrender to Jesus. Newton marks this point as the conversion of his heart to Jesus Christ. But he was only half converted. He knew he must pursue righteousness. But he was still unwilling to surrender everything. Now please just let me say to you, God is for you. He is not against you. God is not mad at you. Some of you who are listening today, you think God is against you. You think he's mad at you. He's not. That's not who God is. God wants to save you. And he is allowing things into your life that would cause you to stop and listen and make new choices and decisions about what you will do with Jesus. God has a plan for your life. He doesn't intend that you should drift slowly down the stream and then be dumped over into hell. He intends in his kindness to save your soul. Being half converted will not bring you into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You must be fully converted. After years of forced service, of shackles of starvation, of slavery, this man, John Newton, who was still stubborn in his heart, decides to go into the slave trade for himself. He still had a hard heart. Despite suffering as a slave himself, despite being whipped and flogged, after becoming a Christian, for the next six years, Newton made regular voyages to Africa and the West Indies and North America dealing in the trading of human beings. God was not yet done with this half-converted man. God was calling after him. And God was going to do whatever he had to do to bring this man into full conversion and total commitment to Jesus because he planned to use this man to turn the whole nation of Great Britain away from slavery. After his 
dramatic experience at sea and a self-proclaimed conversion to Jesus Christ. There were changes in his life. He now attended church when not at sea. He read spiritual books. He prayed. He spoke outwardly of his faith. But Newton saw no conflict between standing on the slave ship and leading a Sunday worship service while below deck men and women and children suffocating and dying. All Newton wanted was money. And no matter what was required, he was going to gain wealth for himself. It is a profound and vivid display of the utter depravity of a man's heart. How could this man, who had been a slave, a man who had had his back lashed with a cat of nine, a man who was shackled in chains, a man who had served as the lowest of slaves, a slave to slaves, how could he pursue money by way of slavery? How could he profit from men and women and children losing their freedom and causing terrible suffering in the lives of others when he personally had experienced the lowest of that suffering. I'm sure that's what he meant when he wrote in that wonderful song, Amazing Grace that saved a, a wretch, a worm like me. Newton was the lowest form of human flesh. It actually ended up taking John Newton 35 years to publicly acknowledge his sin and speak of his life as a slave trader. The growth of the American continent the Caribbean and the West Indies in the 1700s, along with the insatiable demand in Europe for sugar and tobacco and lumber, grains and cotton and other commodities from the Americas, required labor, cheap labor. Kings and warlords and kidnappers in Africa provided the Dutch and the French and the English slave traders all the human cargo they could carry. Now, what some of you may not know is that Africa had had a booming slave trade for a thousand years. By the time the Americas were starting to import slaves from the European traders, such as Newton, wars in Africa between nations and kingdoms produced prisoners. Most of these prisoners were sold by the Africans to the white slave traders, to the Muslim and Arab slave traders, even to the Indians. It is truly a sad and deplorable part of human history. But let's make no mistake. Black and white, 
Arab, Indian. We all share in a common guilt. It is a deplorable description of what is in every human being's heart. The desire for supremacy, the desire to control other men, the desire for money. Now I not I know it's not taught in the public schools today. But we do indeed need to realize how quickly freedom can evaporate, how precious it is, and how scarce it is even in the world today. We need to face the history of the human heart and not try to sanitize it and not try to blame one race or another For all races are all sons and daughters of Adam. When you get past the skin, we all have the same blood. The Africans who sold their own countrymen into slavery were as complicit in the trade as the white European or the Arab Muslim trader who bought them. There can be no buyers without sellers. In the year 1800, it was estimated that one-fourth to one-third of the population of the African continent was enslaved. Fifty percent of Madagascar was enslaved. One-third of Burma and one-third of Thailand's population were slaves. India had eight million or more. You know how many slaves there are in India today? More than 14 million. Yes, today. Russia had about 20 million slaves, and China had 30 million or so. Even today in China, there are more than 3 million slaves. The worldwide slave trade in the year 1800 dwarfed the well-known transatlantic American slave trade. We don't talk much about this today for some reason, but we should be more aware of how prevalent the loss of freedom was and how prevalent the loss of freedom is today. History repeats itself. Slavery was and is much larger than is commonly known. In fact, and I'll deal with this later, There are more slaves today. There are more slaves in the world today than there was at any point during the time America and England were trading in the slave trade. It's the wickedness. It is the utter vileness of man's heart that makes him want to rule and enslave another. And we see coming in America slavery, loss of freedom, 
it's time to wake up. And I'm speaking to Christians. It's time to wake up and stop being half converted and turn and make our relationship right with Jesus. Now, slave ship operators such as John Newton could journey to the coast of West Africa where the African slave catchers would hold their captives near the sea, buy enough humans to fill the ship, several hundred people, and on a single journey to Jamaica, New Orleans, Charleston, South Carolina, Philadelphia, New York City, or Boston, a slave ship could make 100% of its investment in a single one- to two-month endeavor. They would double their money or close to it on one voyage. Now, it would be easier to tell this story today if we could alter the facts a little. It would make more sense if Newton was an evil slave trader than a man who repented and then spent his time continuing to be a slave trader. Newton was half converted. He profited from the sale of men after the Lord began to reveal himself to him. And during these years as a slave trader, Newton began to deepen in his understanding of the Christian faith, and a conviction from God began to grow in him, and he had a second revelation of Jesus Christ. He decided that he must leave the slave trade and become a non-slave merchant cargo ship captain, But right before he was about to become captain of the non-slave cargo ship and get out of the slave trade altogether at the age of 30, an unknown illness caused him to collapse, and he was never able to sail again. Now, it's hard to pinpoint what this illness was. Some have said that it was a stroke. We don't know. Whatever it was, he was able to live, though, until he was 82 years of age in good health. God removed him from his life on the sea because he had plans for him. Remember his mother praying in his youth that he would become a pastor? For the next 50 years, he would find his true love in the word of God. He earned a living by becoming a customs agent and then a surveyor. And within seven years or so of leaving the sea at the age of 38, he entered the ministry, the gospel ministry full-time. He wrote hundreds of hymns. He became a great preacher and minister. He would hold large prayer meetings. He drew large groups of people when he would preach. And he became an absolutely steadfast abolitionist. He was ashamed of his past. He repudiated utterly, totally, and completely all slavery. God used this shame, this deep repentance. He married, adopted two orphan nieces, and educated himself in Latin and Greek in the scriptures. And he met George Whitfield sometime around 1760, and Newton became Whitfield's enthusiastic disciple. Later in his ministry, he met and befriended John Wesley, 
who was also completely against the slave trade. Both Wesley and Newton were friends with a young man named William Wilberforce. In 1779, at the age of 54, Newton wrote that hymn that would inspire and touch millions. Amazing Grace. But this would not be his greatest work for the Lord. It was the absolutely profound effect that John Newton would have on slavery that was nothing short of astonishing. God was about to use him to help change a nation and the world. William Wilberforce was a rising star in the English Parliament. He was struggling to gain traction in the abolitionist movement. 1785, the 26-year-old Wilberforce, who'd been in Parliament since the age of 20, was leading the uphill battle to rid England of its dealings in slavery. He had recently renewed his faith in Christ, and he sought counsel from an old pastor by the name of John Newton, now 60 years of age, the leading evangelical Anglican clergyman of the day and rector of a great church in the city of London. Look where God placed John Newton right where he needed him. The young Christian politician who would fight to rid England of its sin of slavery was at one point deciding and considering whether or not the fight was even worth fighting. And where did God send Wilberforce? Straight to John Newton. Newton advised Wilberforce to fight. I hope the Lord will make him a blessing, both as a Christian and as a statesman, Newton said. Newton's advice and mentorship of Wilberforce was invaluable. He began attending Newton's church and spending time with him privately. Newton became his pastor and friend and a close ally and confidant in the 20-year fight in Parliament to abolish totally and completely the slave trade in England. after spending time with John Newton that Wilberforce recorded in his diary his absolute decision to carry on the fight to end this wicked slavery no matter what the cost. Wilberforce would sometimes grow discouraged and Newton would encourage him to persist reminding him of another public figure, Daniel, of the Bible, who Newton said trusted in the Lord, was faithful, though his enemies tried to prevail against him. 1788, more than three decades after he had retired from the slave trade, and after ministering to and counseling Wilberforce, For three years on the matter, John Newton broke his long silence on the subject and publicly repented his life of slavery. He published thoughts upon the African slave trade. Wilberforce 
placed a copy of this shocking and disturbing report by Newton with every single member of both houses of Parliament. Newton began with a deep apology and then described what he had witnessed during his years as a slave trader. Newton stated, This repentant written confession started it by, by reading, by writing Matthew 7.12, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The nature and effects of that unhappy and disgraceful branch of commerce, which has long been maintained on the coast of Africa, with the sole and professed design of purchasing our fellow creatures in order to supply our West Indian islands and the American colonies with slaves, is now generally un understood. So much light has been thrown upon the subject by many able pens and by so many respectable persons who have engaged to the utmost to influence the suppression of this traffic which contradicts the feelings of humanity, that it is hoped that this stain of our national character will soon be wiped out. If I attempt, after what has been done, to throw my might into the public stock of information, it is less from an apprehension that my interference is necessary than from a conviction that silence at such a time, on such an occasion, would in me be criminal. My testimony should not be necessary or serviceable, yet perhaps I am bound in conscience to take shame to myself by a public confession, which however since comes too late to prevent or repair the misery and mischief to which I have formerly been an accessory, I will hope will always be a subject of humiliation and reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. I am not qualified, and if I were, I should think it rather unsuitable to my present character as a minister of the gospel to consider the African slave trade merely in a political light. My character as a minister will only allow and perhaps require me to observe that the best human policy of that is that which is connected with a reverential regard to Almighty God, the supreme governor of the world. Every plan which aims at the welfare of a nation in defiance of God's authority and laws, however apparently wise, will prove to be essentially defective, and if persisted in, ruinous. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness, and he has engaged to plead the cause and vindicate the wrongs of the oppressed. It is righteousness that exalteth a nation, and wickedness, is the present reproach 
and will sooner or later, unless repentance intervene, prove the ruin of any people. Now, these words of John Newton are as true today as they were then. Today, we have approved by government decree the killing of our babies in the mama's womb and claimed it the mother's right to murder for convenience a baby. It is so far beyond the pale of anything that God could possibly desire, and it will bring utter ruin and destruction on America if America does not turn away from abortion, even as England turned away from the slave trade, America must turn away from abortion, but half-converted men and women can never turn this nation from abortion. Our Supreme Court says that marriage can be between a man and a man. If we do not turn from this ruinous practice, the judgment of God will fall upon this nation. If we do not turn from the vile entertainment and the vile practices of our day, if there is not a revival of righteousness in America, if the pulpits of America don't burn with proclamation of righteousness, America will be judged even as Sodom and Gomorrah was, and America will be destroyed. Being half-converted is a road to hell. A half-converted Christian could remain silent in the face of the great wickedness of our day as freedoms are stripped from us. We have pursued a course of giving up freedom for security. There is no security outside of Jesus Christ. This nation was not founded as a secular nation. This, found, this nation was founded on the deepest and mo most profound principles of God, of the Judeo-Christian teachings. And as a nation, we are turning away from God. We are renouncing in the secular world, in the, in the neutered and castrated secular world, we are turning away from the Lord God of heaven and casting him out of our schools, out of our public square. The ACLU is one of the most wicked organizations ever to be founded upon the earth. It is as wicked as were those men and women who prospered by the slave trade in John Newton's day. There must come an awakening across this nation and a return to the godly principles of the Christian faith. John Newton went on to testify in person before the British Parliament numerous times. Newton bore testimony to the British government not only as a slave trader, but also as a former slave. And Newton's perspective, his unique perspective on the matter, was of absolute necessity in getting the public and the politicians to reject England's involvement 
in the evil of dealing in human slavery. It took Wilberforce and Newton 20 years. God used John Newton to change what was the most powerful and influential nation on the earth, which in turn affected the slave trade worldwide, as England was by far the most involved in the trade. Newton, who was once blind, now could see very, very clearly the consequences of his sin and his rebellion and the sin of his nation. He was no longer half converted. He was now sold out. Preached until the age of 82. That was the last year of his life. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am have been a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. He died in London December 21, 1807, nine months after Parliament had voted to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire. It's time, my brother and my sister, to get right with Jesus. Please go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You've been listening to Pastor Ray Greenley, Pilgrim's Progress. I love you, my brother and my sister. It's time to be fully converted to Jesus Christ. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Present you blameless before the presence of his glory.